Welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. This is our uh, sixth episode, session five. We're recording on the 15th of February, 2020. You know, I was thinking about this. Do you realize that we're in the double crit? We're, we're in like crit with advantage year. Oh, 2020, 2020. yeah. I hadn't even thought of that until like just before this episode. Anyways, yeah, but 1920 had a much better range. Yeah, it's good for champions. Um, I am Tom Lando, and I am your host for uh, Comparing Campaign. And as always, joining me is my co-host. I am McGill, Cody M. Welcome, fair travelers. Yes, Cody M. And uh, just like last time, my catchphrase is, ah, not me. So... We'll see. If I, I still haven't figured out time. a catchphrase, but I I do have some fun new content for later in the show. I can only hope that you someday find a catchphrase as ubiquitously applicable as "Not me," because boy, does it seal <laughs> or at least one that I has a funny voice to go with it. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe that's the start is finding your voice, like uh, like comedians say. Anyway, so session five. I think we're both pretty excited for these because uh, you, uh, I mean, we left off on a pretty intense note with your game, and mine is just, uh, I feel like it's the first session where things really come together for the party that I've been telling the story of. Um, It has certain elements that you had asked me about previously, like you had asked me about location-based adventures and you had asked me about sort of uh role-playing centric non-combat heavy adventures uh with a lot of social interaction and this is both of those it was sort of the first of its kind in my uh career of running 5e games but uh that's Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition and uh I'd really hope our listeners would know by now but I guess if this is your first episode Welcome, D and D. I know. I mean, maybe we've just been throwing around the term five E. Uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if we had, but it only just occurred to me that, like, you know, it's uh, it's it's shorthand for fifth edition. Um, but uh, as but what excited is, as I what am, is Thaco what? short for, Tom? Uh. I uh, no no I'm sorry. What? Oh uh, my god! <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I I don't know. I got. I've Nobody lost understood Thaco anyway. To hit armor class zero. See, I knew it was armor class zero, but I blanked on the to hit. I wanted to say like the hit number. <laughs> I don't know. Thaco, um, just just one of the things being stripped away uh, several editions ago. And I consider that an improvement. Anyway, do go on. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. Now I'm getting all on a thing about AC in my head, but I shouldn't get too distracted. As excited as I am to hear about your adventure, I believe we decided that I'd be doing my adventure first this time because you've started off the past couple episodes. Please do. All right. So we pick up with my game in operation summer resonance now 
a while back, this was, uh, I think, the second session. So session two, that would have been episode three for me. Uh, I told the story of how um, the party went and they rescued a fellow MPOC agent from uh, a library. He was gathering intel. Um, pretty simple stuff, but, you know, it was something where an agent got caught and he needed to be extracted. What this session was, was sort of um, dealing with the aftermath of that, which is there was this sudden, you know, I've talked about the divisions of Drail, and so this would have taken place in the north of Drail. I think I mentioned that because it was in uh, Settler's Green, the sort of like fey, elf, gnome territory, that sort of thing. And so... Following that incident where an agent got captured in action in Settler's Green, there was sort of uh, a mobilization amongst concerned parties in the North uh, about what they were going to do about these spies, basically. Like, were they going to perhaps band together against the MPOC as, uh, you know, something that was trying to interfere in their state matters and whatnot and so this uh session focuses on a summit of sort of political leaders in the north uh and the premise behind the summit is that they're all going to get together and pool information on these spies which are our heroes and uh you know decide how to uh, defend against them or, you know, decide if they're all going to ally against them, that sort of thing. And so what this was was something where all the players were being sent sort of as undercover agents to this big banquet at the summit. And uh, there they had to do whatever they could to sort of uh, derail the... Uh, proceedings cool and this is reminding me of like uh missions from like dishonored the video game dishonored mm -hmm. i actually haven't played it that much i've watched my sister play it but i myself have not played it as much myself i i but... really love uh there there really isn't any of it in the uh the steampunk campaign but i really do love running adventures where you got to take like your rough and tumble band of heroes and give them a makeover and then put them in like a high a high snobby society social situation where they have to like get a piece of information or find a secret room or something like that without getting caught it's always a fun sort of dynamic basically like taking away their weapons saying now but you can't just shoot your way out of this one and it's funny because i didn't necessarily go that far um, what I like to think of, as well as this being the session where it all sort of came together for the party, in the same way, it was sort of the session where they were murder hobos no more. You know, I presented them a situation where the answer could have been assassinate people, burn the place down, cause a ruckus, um, and they distinctly chose not to take that approach, which was cool to see that and is really cool but that, yeah that's if, really rewarding i'd imagine 
Yeah, especially because everyone did find their own play for the uh, for the adventure, so or for the operation. Well, and it also so, it's them actually acting like spies, not just you know killers, but they basically. Yeah, exactly. They use their infiltration skills as well. Yeah. So, um, as I've gone through before, we have uh, Mealy, the elf thief. We have uh, Valfar Ein Draglin guy, the black metal dragonborn, bla black dragonborn bard. And we have uh, Alistair, who is an infernal warlock. And then we have Magnus, the drunken dwarf paladin. And so each of them came up with their own uh, role for the evening. Um, Magnus's thing as the drunken paladin was to basically make sure that the entire security force for the evening was drunk. Uh, so he just went around buying rounds for all the uh, all the great guys working the security that night, uh, challenging people to drinking games if they were not uh you know sufficiently inebriated or if they were giving people in the party trouble while they were uh up to some skullduggery um meanwhile on a sort of more uh generalized magical crowd control uh Valfar on Draglin guy the bard arranged to be the night's entertainment and uh, was I believe he was using spells like calm emotions and things like that. So again, uh, just sort of keeping things from reaching any kind of like climactic uh, pitch or anything. Um, then Mealy, uh, kind of predictably, her being the thief, she did some like second story work, snuck in through an upper window of the place. Uh, got into like the private quarters of one of the lords and just like robbed him blind. Uh, you know, there was uh, people had brought sort of um, collect collections of, of gold and whatnot that they could put towards alliances of good faith and whatnot, but uh, that gold all just went missing, so that didn't work out, and finally. Alistair, the warlock, uh, I think, you know, the fact is the warlock's main stat is the is charisma. And so it was natural for him to sort of be the guy who goes around and actually talks to people and schmoozes. I just don't think that Alistair had been in this situation yet. He'd always been in situations where it just was easier to throw fireballs at people. And so Alistair cooked up this plot with the rest of the party, which was he was going to act as a representative of a non-existent organization that was effectively, the idea was that it was an agency that was already combating the MPOC. And this liaison was revealing this agency to the summit uh, to say, like, well, we already have the answer to your problems. And so he just had to pitch all the lords and everything to put their faith in this non-existent organization uh, called the Crimson Tower. They came up with the name kind of out of nowhere. I, I, I don't know what the... Uh, you know, if there was any inspiration behind that or anything, I, 
I could ask them sometime. Anyway. So Alistair goes around and he's uh, he's acting as the liaison to the Crimson Tower and he's talking to lords and each one he sort of uh, talks them up like, so what are you hoping to offer to this alliance and whatnot? Like this this summit to take down the Empok, what do you believe you can do? And sort of like finding out what their what their plans were and whatnot. And then he would eventually say, well, I actually represent an organization that may be able to help you. And he was doing this with various lords. And then at some point in the session, he addressed the rest of the party and said, you know, this lord, he seems like a bit of a chump. Do we even want this guy in the Crimson Tower? To which the party baffled said there is no crimson tower (laughs) that's the whole point what do you mean do we want him in the crimson tower there is no crimson tower that has haunted that player for his whole DD career from that day on (laughs) he is always the guy who started with a plot to pitch people on a non-existent organization and about halfway into the plot was actually trying to assemble this non-existent organization. (laughs) And, uh, He bought his own bullshit. Yeah, hell of a charisma check. And it should be said that this was basically the inspiration for down the line. They did establish the Crimson Tower. That is great. Oh, that's so good. It's like at some point they had basically, you know, I think one thing that I should probably mention about running these games is like uh, MPOC agents are supposed to get a pretty decent uh, payout for the risks that they take and whatnot. And so there was definitely a point where the players had so much gold that they were looking to make big investments and... uh, after some deliberation, they ended up deciding to literally found an organization in the north called the Crimson Tower uh, that would certainly baffle anyone who in the previous year or so believed they had been conned by an organization of the same name. And now is the Crimson Tower, it's just like a meme in your group, just come up again and again. I mean, it's more the specific moment of the player being like, wait, do we even want this guy in the Crimson Tower? And no, there is no Crimson Tower. But it is like a (laughs) physical location. Like they built a tower in the north or like they invested in building a tower and uh, that is called the Crimson Tower. And it's just kind of like, I guess the idea is any, any lord from that summit back in that like fifth session of our first campaign uh probably went a long time saying don't trust anybody who says they're from the crimson tower only to realize that suddenly it was a real organization (laughs) it bit bit him on the ass twice yeah basically (laughs) it's uh it, it was that was kind of what the characters set out to achieve with it i love that that is one of those like uniquely D D situations 
Yeah, and it, it gives a good sense of, like, you know, I, I mentioned it's almost a bit of a spoiler because, like, they don't end up founding that Crimson Tower thing until much later in the campaign. But that does give an example of how the downtime and the sort of more personal role-playing space got defined in my game. So, I mean, this operation had plenty of role-playing in it and whatnot, and uh, that was all part of the, the main, you know, stuff I set up beforehand in terms of, like, the layout of ops. But then um, later there was a point where between operations they sort of went to went in together on this investment and decided to create the crimson tower uh kind of more just to really make something confusing for the npcs of my setting than anything else so that's where your that's where your adventure wrapped up i mean yeah um between the crowd control, like keeping the security from catching Mealy, stealing all the gold, and Alistair convincing everyone. I mean, the security wasn't going to stop him anyways, but, you know, Alistair basically convinced everyone to put their faith in a non-existent organization. And it basically brought this idea of the North sort of uh, rallying together against the Empok to a standstill. Though... um I mean, th other things were cooking in the setting at that point, you know. Uh, jumping from this point where they handle what could be a situation unfolding in the north, I think the next operation has them dealing with a pretty major situation, which is also connected to a previous operation, uh, but this time in the south. Cool. So should, yeah, should we move on to mine? I'm excited to hear about yours. So when we last left our party, they had just been taken captive by Hudson Kane by the enemy, and Peckinpah had turned on them, revealing his traitorous nature and the fact that he isn't even actually Peckinpah. But let's face it, everybody just referred to him as Peckinpah for the rest of the game anyway. Um, the, the lantern was captured. The whole party was captured and uh Trail. yeah i mean and i it ended on like a big sort of intense you know note where uh the moment i said like and we'll you know we'll close the book here uh, on this session uh everybody was like what no oh my god so for the follow-up to that uh, I find that around, like, session five of a campaign, that's when I, as the DM, tend to get kind of bored with doing, like, little episodic adventures. And up until this point in the steampunk campaign, uh, it had been, like, getting the team together. Each adventure was, like, going and getting a new member of the team and then having to deal with Kane's men hot on their trail, uh, lots of little shootouts and things like that. Um, so... Around this time, I was like, all right, it's time to, like, switch up the dynamic. Put the players on the back foot, take away their toys so they, they don't have their ship, uh, all their, like, weapons, anything that they didn't have hidden on them uh, was confiscated. And uh, I don't remember if uh, Professor Abendroth, Dietrich Abendroth, hid anything, but, of course, Lady Anna 
hid like a couple of little Derringer pistols. So she was armed. Um, and uh, I, I opened this adventure just with like Hudson Kane interrogating them one at a time and then throwing them all together in the brig. And uh, I wanted to ask you because I was reviewing my notes and I ran, I basically role played this like short torture session uh, using rules I found in the D&D manual, The Book of Vile Darkness. And it's basically like, it's basically a skill check. It's like a series of uh, saving throws and, you know, uh, constitution checks and things like that. And if the torturer succeeds, then the player has to tell the truth. But if he doesn't succeed, the torturer doesn't know and the player can lie. Um, have you ever run torture? All your campaigns are based on, like, heavy metal. This seems like your, your territory. Uh... I don't know that I've ever put my players in that. I mean, I put my players in situations where they had suddenly, you know, lost their power. But I don't think I've ever uh, then had them tortured. Um, hmm. It wasn't think, really brutal. To, like, the thing about, I don't know, have you ever looked at the Book of Isle Darkness manual? I am familiar with it. Uh, Pretty intense stuff in there. too much. Um, I... I I was going to say one thing is that like since the primary villain in my campaign is the Nightside Eclipse um they're almost like their their whole thing about being like necro supremacists it's almost like uh they like I f I feel like they really would dislike the idea of using pain or if they used like torture it would be to illustrate that being a living organism uh, entails having such a huge capacity for suffering that these undead don't really have any understanding of. <laughs> it's a lot more philosophical than in my case where uh, I just had Kane do some like electroshock torture on the players to emphasize what an awful guy he is. He's very like cold-hearted, uh, very sort of flippant, and just really doesn't care. He will step on anyone to achieve his goals. And so he wants to know everything that the players know. Uh, and really, in this case, it was just to, to re-emphasize to the players how helpless that they were. I didn't want anybody in at this point in this adventure like to try anything stupid like trying to escape. So yeah, I just... I, I just um, wanted to say that... Uh, yeah, with with these villains that I had, the Nightside Eclipse, the Undead, it really is like if if I like torture would be like a recruitment tool where they're basically <laughs> saying, "Doesn't this suck? Wouldn't you rather be undead? We don't have to d worry about this." Um, but yeah, and it's funny because I have had like we'll we'll probably get to. In this campaign, I had a point where I made the party helpless, um, but they were not then tortured, uh, basically. So, no, I haven't done that. How do you handle, uh, like, moments when the party has to be helpless? Like, that's something that I often... I wouldn't say I struggle with it, but I always find it to be sort of a challenge to make the players feel helpless while not making them feel like I'm railroading them, you know? So definitely, like, when I think about making the 
characters helpless. I think of this specific example from this campaign, which I won't like get into what happened too much, but I know that around that time, like leading up to that session, I was very like, again, this was my first fifth edition campaign. I hadn't done anything like this before. And so I was very uncertain about it going in. And so I think, um, maybe not the day before, but certainly like at the start of the session, I told the players up front, this is one where you will basically become helpless at a point. Like you will, I th I tried to make it very transparent for them so that um, they would understand what was happening was not just me trying to like hit them with a really unfair situation is that it was like, more like a transition cutscene. Um, I think a really good example of this from video games personally uh, is the original Half-Life um, is this extremely, you know, just like a gameplay-based environmental storytelling thing. But there is a point at which you just get like knocked out and then you sort of like fade in and out while some bad guys are carrying you to a place and then you wake up at that place um yeah like as as long as i think yeah it's about making it clear to the players that this is not you're not trying to challenge them you are trying to provide a narrative transition and with that i think you know once we got there i basically said so this is what i was talking about and they all sort of knew at that point cool yeah i think what you just said is i think you hit the nail on the head there you want the players to understand that you're not doing this out of animosity you're not doing the the cliched power tripping dm thing where you like you know you you lay the player low for no reason other than haha you're the dm and you have ultimate control over the game um and in my case, I did not, obviously, I didn't give the players any forewarning, especially because I wanted to surprise them with Peckinpah's betrayal. But right. I, evidently, I succeeded in what I was trying to do, because when it happened, it was like they had stepped in a trap that had been set for them. I mean, they, they literally fell into a trap that had been set for them uh, by Kane and Peckinpah. And because I had seeded the details in enough... Uh, when it happened, they, they like felt duped, but it wasn't coming from a place of like anger, like, oh, how could you pull this on us? It was like, God damn it. I should have seen that coming. Um, mm. which is still very deeply satisfying. As I mentioned, Peck and Paw's betrayal, like lives on, uh, in my gaming group as the reason not to trust any of my NPCs. I have such a hard time getting my players to trust my NPCs now because of this betrayal. So You've got Peck and Paw, and I've got the Crimson Tower. Exactly. So uh, I interrogated all the players, and this was all just, like, from a, a game mechanics perspective, this was all for show. Uh, I was giving, I basically had it written that Kane would find out everything that the players knew, because if the players didn't give it up in their torture session, then one of the NPCs would instead. Um, all Everybody's thrown in the brig together of... Uh, of Sutter or uh, of Hudson Kane's ship, uh, which is sort of like it, the design on this. If you picture a Zeppelin, you know how they have the little carriage underneath. 
Well, instead of that carriage, imagine like a big black battle submarine. It's this like Zeppelin submarine hybrid, uh, really menacing with a lot of like jagged angles. And uh, so the players are all in the brig with the NPCs. And after, you know, last session had ended with a big action sequence and a, a chase, and now they're captured and then there's torture. So I gave the players some downtime here, time to regroup, and also took the opportunity to like play a bit myself as the NPCs. So, you know, Ashwina, the navigator, bemoaned that she's a prisoner and she said she never should have left the underwater city. Uh, Pilot is nursing a hangover and just annoyed with everybody. And uh, Dr. Forrester, who they just recruited in the Flying City, uh, he's basically just the grumpier version of Professor Sutter. Uh, I wanted to give them another sort of smart hero to play off Dietrich Abendroth, uh, someone who has more inside knowledge about like Liftwood, the discovery of the meteor from Mars, uh, Ether, how everything works. So the two of them gabbed on about scientific topics, and I just used this moment to like answer people's questions. Uh, it was around this time that I actually started sort of seeding in another plot point about the moon, but you'll see how that sort of comes it comes into play later. Um, and at this point, the players just took it as a side topic and not foreshadowing, which in fact it was. Um, so I can't really remember, I don't have in my notes how the players tried to escape their cell, but it didn't work. Um, knowing my group, it was probably... They always try to talk their way out of it, and they never succeed because they always... How do you... Sort of sidebar, how do you handle, like, diplomacy stuff, diplomacy checks in your D&D &D games? Because there's the, the scale, right, where it's, like, hostile, unfriendly, neutral, friendly, helpful. I think that's the, the gradients. Do you ever play yeah. using that? I mean, I, I'm familiar with that gradient. I don't, I probably, I don't think I use it too often. I think more often I have, um, you know, I think, so for example, with the session that I described today, Operation Summer Resonance, uh, there would have probably been a pre-existing like uh, DC for certain lords or guards in terms of like, what it took to persuade them or, or what it took to bribe them or, or that sort of thing. Um, and I think largely I like to do it through role-playing, you know, like I, I like to just see like, well, what do you say and what's your angle on this? And once that is established, then I'll bring in the skill check uh, to get a sense of like, how receptive the NPC is to that. Well, I frequently play just using that I... that table of, you know, hostility versus friendliness. And if you succeed on your diplomacy checks, you can move uh, the NPC's attitude towards you up or down on the table, depending on what you roll. Um, I feel the... I should say... I also, I mentioned like setting DCs also sometimes based on the scenario. And this is something I do more often uh, now that I'm more experienced with fifth edition, but you know, you'll have, uh, say you have some villagers and they're scared and they don't want to tell the party uh, what's going on or something. 
and there will be the option to persuade them to speak up and then there will be the option to intimidate them and the dc may be the same but the intimidate is like inherently at disadvantage because the villagers are already scared and scaring them more is not going to help uh that sort of thing well my players have this bad habit of trying to diplomacy their way out of situations where the npcs are hostile starting from a hostile position and they just never succeed enough to get them to a place of friendliness or even helpfulness uh, and it happens time and again, but it's always really fun to roleplay those interactions, those awkward conversations where they're like, so, how much is so-and-so paying you? Things like that. Um, so I imagine, knowing my group, they probably tried to, like, diplomacy the guard into letting them out or into, like, leaving the room so that Cunningham could try to disable the cell door or something. None of the players in this case were charismatic heroes, uh, you had the smart heroes, Forrester and uh, Abendroth, fast hero in Lady Anna, uh, tough hero in Gregor, strong hero in Cunningham, uh, and who am I missing there? Oh, and Price and Pilot. Pilot is a fast hero, of course, and Price is a dedicated hero. None of them were charisma-based, so uh, they probably just failed immediately. Anyway, um... After their failed attempt to escape, a squad of guards led by Cogliostro shows up with Kane following behind them. Uh, and he marches the players through the ship and they sort of take note of like just a bit of the interior architecture of the ship, a bit of the layout, uh, trying to memorize it as they get led through it. And he marches them to the rear hangar of his spacecraft. Uh, the lantern is in that same hangar. They can see it. And, uh, Kane starts doing the bad guy monologue uh, as Cogliostro is walking around and he's he's distributing these re ether rebreathers. I wanted to ask these. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, you said the the lantern is in the hangar. Is it? It's in the hangar of Hudson Kane's ship. Yeah. So Hudson's Kane's ship is like five times the size of the lantern. Exactly. Yeah, significantly okay. bigger. Like what a what a dick. Yeah. <laughs> well he's got that funding right exactly. uh, this is what that dynamic did. i wanted to create like the scrappy underdogs versus the like way overfunded militaristic bad guys um, i mean it's it's basically the star destroyer and the millennium Falcon yeah exactly star picturing. destroyer yeah, millennium well not quite that big not quite that big, right but right, right. but the same dynamic yeah where yeah that's exactly it actually um and I very easily, like, had they succeeded in their escape att attempt, I may well have run this as, like, the jailbreak from A New Hope if I wanted to. Because I had plotted out the basic interior map of Kane's spacecraft. So that's one of those things that I like. I don't know. That I talk about these, you know, situations that are sort of unique to D&D. &D. I always love to look for those opportunities like that where... You know, maybe this this whole adventure goes in a slightly different direction where I keep the main sort of plot points that I want to hit. But if the players succeed in getting out of their cell, maybe it becomes something else entirely. Um, but no, it didn't. They didn't succeed. And now they're in the rear hangar. Lantern's right there. Kane is monologuing and he starts talking about the moon. And as he's talking about the moon, he opens the rear hangar doors and at this point, we see that they are now in space and they're flying out over the moon. Um, 
and he says that to, in his monologue he says that the moon has no natural atmosphere but some say that the moss that grows in its canyons can generate oxygen and if not well at least these rebreathers will give you guys you know a few hour a few a peaceful few final hours far away from all the hubbub back on earth and uh then they're just forced out of the back of the ship uh i have them make uh, reflex checks and like tumble tumble checks and things like that uh to determine if they take a lot of fall damage but of course the moon has like lower gravity and everybody's basically okay i think you know a few hit points were lost but nothing too severe and this reminds me of a classic video game lunar lander oh yeah <laughs> god i used to play that game so much I have it on Atari Vault on Steam, but this is a digression for another podcast. I'm playing it right now as we talk. Um, and so this is that moment. You know, I've been talking about this moment for, uh, I feel like, a few of our ep episodes already. Uh, that moment of helplessness. Take away all your players' toys. Like, really leave them feeling stuck, stranded. And nothing says stranded, like literally watching the only means of escaping a planet like flying away they're stuck on the moon they can breathe but they don't have any of their gear except Ladyana has a couple of the guns that she's hidden um and they're just completely stranded and the the players are like stunned at this point they don't know what the hell they're gonna do uh so they take a moment to like regroup and they decide well you know kane mentioned that the moss that grows in the canyons can generate oxygen so let's at least find that uh so they went exploring and found one of these lunar canyons nearby and they climb down into it and the walls are covered in this crusty yellow lichen abendroth does some tests on it and it produces oxygen so they can take off their rebreathers and they can breathe so long as they're in these canyons and like so they take more time to regroup at least now we can breathe they still don't know what to do uh and the consensus becomes like well let's see if we can you know find things ways to survive shelter something to eat maybe uh some something to drink uh and they figure let's just stick to the canyons because we can breathe down here uh so the players start exploring i believe i used some like i'm trying to remember what the d20 modern skill is for it but there is like you know uh navigate investigate knowledge nature that kind of check to just sort of find their way around these caverns and uh after sort of a short bit of exploration they find themselves below the lunar surface in a network of tunnels and abendroth deduces that the tunnels look like those of an ant colony just bigger and then course right as he says that these moon men attack and the moon men are the bugs from a trip to the moon uh nice. these like man-sized sort of insectoid you know crab-like creatures and they come pouring out of you know the tunnels uh in a big swarm and they all start swarming on the the players and the players start fighting them off we have a, a little fight scene i didn't give the moon men very high stats because i wanted the players to really to be able to defend themselves with you know, minimal arsenal since I took away all their guns. And uh, so they they do a quick little fight and uh, they, they're, they've got the, the moon men on the defensive and then suddenly uh, all of the moon men retreat. They scurry away. 
the players are like, what? What's going on? And at that moment, this giant lunar centipede that's like the size of a subway train bursts out of the ground and attacks them. And at this point, this is another moment from the campaign that really uh, lived on afterwards. Uh, I rolled for the centipede to attack Lady Anna, and I just wound up rolling like a bunch of criticals. <laughs> and so, and, uh, so it just swallowed Lady Anna in one bite, and Caitlin freaked out. <laughs> and, uh, and so before before I wrap up what happened, here, here's maybe a good time to ask you. So, Tom, how do you handle player death? Does that ever happen? Do you ever have a, a character die on you? Basically, like, two sessions pretty close to each other, um, like, a character died more than once, basically. And the first time they were like traveling with a very high level cleric at the time. And so it stood to reason that the cleric would raise them. And the cleric was like a major NPC from a previ previous campaign. There was sort of like some uh, build up for this. However, the next time it happened, uh, they were actually that character died while the party was in like a mini dungeon of like a necromancer. And the rest of the party fled, and later they came back, and the necromancer had raised that character as a zombie, and they basically had to like fight that character and then uh, raise them afterwards. <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome and elaborate. Um... Yeah, I I even did a thing of like the necromancer was sort of like just like kind of a loser or something like basically he had all the they they went into his lair and they found these zombies that had been like dressed up in costumes to play like scenes basically and so when they come back to get their old party mate uh he is like reenacting his defeat of the party but he has them all as like really dumb looking zombies <laughs> <laughs> and he's making it look like he's the hero and stuff and uh That's great. <laughs> yeah yeah it was a lot of fun um but but yeah i haven't had like i haven't had just like a death you know like um it's it's I've never had a character just die, you know? No? It's always, there's always some sort of circumstance that always is like, well, I could see them coming back if this happens. So, so that's what I, I, that's sort of what I was getting to is like, is it the, the great DM secret that we don't want our players to die? So we're willing to sort of fudge a little bit just to just to keep things rolling along. Is that would you say that's true? I mean, I'm definitely a DM who roots for my players. Um, I get concerned when they are getting their asses kicked and I like when they're getting their asses kicked and I roll a crit against one of them at a really inopportune time. Like I really go, ah, like, like I feel for the characters on that level. Mm -hmm. I want them to succeed. Um, Cause I, you know, I want to see their adventures. That said, especially in this circumstance where I had a character, like this guy basically died 
more than once pretty early in adventure and like came back both times i was really feeling like okay if if something happens now this guy's a goner like the i had basically you know there's a certain point at which if people aren't dying you know what does it even mean um so yeah i think i think the thing is that like my natural disposition is to root for the characters but there is a threshold where i'm like well i can't just like bring him back to life because i want to and i will say that uh like i i will roll with it if a character dies if the player seems like they're okay with this you know what i mean like my my gaming group uh, i've had a few I, I, yeah. years but for the most part people have been like okay like it could, that can happen uh it's always sort of extenuating circumstances like in this case like if i just do a bunch of really crazy like critical hits and they're in full view of everybody playing i guess that's what happens right i should i should actually say that this literally happened to me uh i had a goblin warlock in in a game of fourth edition um the guy was running basically arkham asylum but like dungeons and dragons and we got on the roof and we fought what was basically killer croc and in the first turn he like crit me and did double my max HP. So on the second session of playing with a new group, I was eaten whole. Uh, but I did cast Hellish Rebuke. So he took some fire damage from eating me. So I was a spicy meatball. But <laughs> that said, uh, you know, I like I am a player who is like, I'm actually kind of tickled to die. Like if I die, I'm like, whoa, cool! Like I, yeah, I almost exactly. get I think it's, tired I think it's of an my underrated experience. Like so much. Yeah, I'm, but at the same time, I have been in games with people who got very upset when they even thought that their character was going to die, um, which I, I don't really get that at all. I, I think that's kind of missing the point, but. Um, my friend Mike, who plays Abendroth, who played Abendroth in the Steampunk campaign, uh, very early on when he and I started playing D&D together, we were playing a D20 modern campaign that was sort of like a Mission Impossible slash Shadowrun kind of a hybrid. And uh, his character died, got like shot in the head by a sniper, critted, just like blew his head right off. And we were playing uh, at his place in the summertime around the fire pit and he was like well i guess that's it then he took his character sheet just put it into the fire <laughs> um, um do you know do you know uh dungeon crawl classics no i don't it's a it's a game basically all i want to talk about is it has this uh thing called the funnel system for character creation where basically you have these very quickly generated characters like they have just some primary sets like they fit on a little cue card basically the the sheet and you generate like five of these characters and then the first session characters just die at the drop of a hat and the character you end up playing is just the character that survives that funnel 
Um, and one time I played a game of this where the whole game was that we had a candle in the center of the table and we had to burn people that died in the funnel <laughs> and uh, whatever we ended up with, whatever our last card was, that was our character. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Well, in this case, Lady Anna did not die. Uh, the Lunar Centipedes attack where it swallows someone whole I had it that the the swallowing dealt a bunch of damage and then they took acid damage in the centipede's stomach for, you know, X number of rounds until they died, basically. And so she took a bunch of damage from being, you know, eaten, swallowed and a bit of acid damage, but she wasn't dead right away. And so uh, when it came for his time for his turn, Gregor just basically went into a barbarian rage and he rolled a bunch of crits and tore a chunk out of the centipede's throat to free Ladyana. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was a really big epic moment. Very <laughs> Caitlin it was very emotional. Her character almost died and then was saved by Gregor. Um, and the centipede was killed. Now, I mentioned, uh, and, you know, everybody sort of takes a moment to regroup. I wish, this is the thing, is like, I almost wish that I had had like a tape recorder for every session of this because I'm sure that Lady Anna had some badass one-liner to kind of put the cap on the whole encounter. Um, now you'll recall that earlier I said I was starting to seed some lore into uh, into the campaign and I had seeded this in little offshoots in previous adventures but basically part of the the lore was that an explorer had tried to mount a mission to the moon, but he was never heard from again. Like, he got out of Earth's atmosphere and was never heard from again. And I, I had mentioned this probably as early as Adventure 1, just talking about, like, a mission to Mars. And somebody would be like, but, you know, the last time anybody tried a space mission, they just disappeared. So after cleaning themselves off and exploring upwards out of the tunnels, the players find the ruin of the explorer's space vessel and like his little leftover camp sort of like uh you know the like the photos you'd see of the really old like arctic camps from explorers that are abandoned up there that kind of thing um so they come upon what like, happened a wrecked to the guy ground. what happened to the guy though does he, do he get eaten by moon men yes he, he was eaten by moon and they find his corpse uh obviously like picked apart i guess i called it you sure did oh you I sure rolled, did I, um, I rolled a good intelligence check for knowing what happened to the man i mean let's face it uh, it's not a stretch not a stretch i'm not going to claim that i wrote some, some really deep piece of fiction here that's hard to predict um so they find, you know, they, they find the ship, they decide that they're going to repair it, and they're going to take chase. Maybe they can even find a way to beat Kane to Mars, or at least retrieve their ship. And that is where the adventure concluded. It's a glimmer of hope and a plan to escape the moon. That was a great, uh, that, I would have really enjoyed that session. I would have been like, damn, this has all my old favorites. Lunar Lander, Trip to the Moon, the classics. <laughs> All the classics. Um, yeah, it was a really fun one. Lots of lots of big moments. You know that you've done something right when like 
you know, one of the characters gets attacked and almost dies, and the player is going like, oh my god, is this the end? Is this the end of Lady Anna? Um, Could have been. Lots of big reactions. So yeah, it was a really fun one. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder... I guess it's just that my games, it's been a long time since I played at a power level where the players couldn't come up with some way to, like, raise a person from the dead. I don't know. all depends on how it happens. Yeah, I try to make death a rarity, but I always... You know, I, this, is, this is the other thing, is that I'm actually pretty free about killing my NPCs. They are the way that I... Uh, emphasize that death is always you know just a moment away just a just a bad roll away but uh i rarely i rarely deal death to my players i'd like to introduce a new segment on the show absolutely i love segments let's do a segment so i i realized you know that i i've mentioned in previous episodes that i always want to take a moment to just talk about like D topics that aren't necessarily pertinent to the campaigns that we're describing. But I realized that, like, we just end up talking about that stuff anyway as we're talking about the campaigns. So instead, I'd like to dedicate, just for a little palate cleanser uh, as we wrap things up, uh, dedicate a little bit of time to reading some fun old stuff from, like, weird D&D manuals and things like that. And I call this segment... The corner table at the tavern. Pull up a chair, Tom, as I regale you with some text from the Encyclopedia Magica. Well, well, hold on. How does this? How does this tavern have so many corners? <laughs> I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, and all of them have a brooding stranger. Um, I also wanted to just say I remembered what I was going to say about uh, player death. Let's have which it. is. Back when I played Vampire and I was really into Vampire and World of Darkness, that is a game where player death was totally fine and came, like, you know, actually, this is a big part of it, I think. You know, when I played Vampire or World of Darkness, the standard was you had, like, seven hit points, basically, um, and a gun could basically take out all of those in one shot and you could die. Like, death was always one scene away in World of Darkness. And I think, you know, part of the whole system of, of HP and everything, like, you don't, if you don't die early on, it's going to be very hard to kill you. <laughs> fair point, fair point. <laughs> like, like I'll, I'll say most of the player deaths I've seen have occurred at low levels when people had enough like had low enough health that they yeah could exactly be like when they have like eight health eight hp at level one then like a and hit from is, a club can kill them the thing is that's where people get the saltiest because they barely had a chance to play their character yeah. like it's it's a bit of a trick um and it's something i've I sort of played with in different campaigns with the second campaign that I ran in this series that I've been talking about. Um, I, I made it, I basically made it so that if the whole party didn't die, nobody was going to die. Um, which was it, it, that is not so much, uh, 
speaking from a place of like personal philosophy as it was just an experiment because it seemed like that's the way the game was working anyways um i don't i don't really keep with that experiment anymore but like i basically had a system where it's like as long as people could be brought back up as their team by their teammates sort of like an online game you know uh they'd be fine um cool anyway sorry so corner table yeah we're here at the corner table you've got an encyclopedia yeah t- take your seat and i will regale you with an excerpt from some some old dungeons and dragons manual from my my collection of many and uh okay can i can i hit you back with one when you're done of course of course you got it um and i've meant i know i've name dropped the encyclopedia magica on some of our previous episodes so i i want to read uh just from what it's it's technically it's two items but they're related to each other uh i love the encyclopedia magica i just think it's an endless source of inspiration for weird dungeons and dragons items so i'm gonna read from volume one of four uh and this is off of page 57 the apparatus of qualish and i also thought that uh, this was sort of this relates to the steampunk campaign this this would fit right in had i had I thought to include it. So, the apparatus of Qualish. Uh, When found, this item is a large sealed iron barrel, but it has a secret catch that opens a hatch in one end, and inside are ten levers. And uh, so each lever does a specific thing, and as you read down the ten lever effects, you realize that basically this is a barrel uh, that when you get inside it and pull what like move one of the levers it turns into a mechanical crab that you can ride in the apparatus yeah. moves forward at a speed of three backwards at six two pincers extend forward uh four feet and snap for 2d6 points of damage um the device can operate in water up to 900 feet deep it can hold two human-sized characters and enough air to operate for 1d4 plus one hours at maximum capacity it has an uh, AC of zero, requires 100 points of damage to cause a leak, 200 to stave in a side. Uh, when the device is operating, it looks something like a giant lobster. And uh, one of the other things I love about uh, the Encyclopedia Magica is it gives you all sorts of secondary information like this first appeared in the DM's Guide first edition. <laughs> the very first DM's Guide was like, mechanical lobster, throw it in there. Uh, it has an Hell XP yeah. value of 8,000, a gold piece value of 35,000, and in the Dragonlance campaign, the apparatus of Qualish does not exist in Ancelon, whatever that means. I mean, some, some place Some plane of existence. And then uh, related to it is the apparatus of Spiky Owns. This item exactly resembles the apparatus of Qualish, except that when activated, it becomes a 10-piece one-man band renowned for its cacophony. It enrages all who hear it, including party members, unless a saving throw versus spells is made, and those who fail the saving throw will attempt to do harm to the operator until he or she stops playing the apparatus, but of course, the owner is charmed by the device and will continue to operate it ad infinitum. First appeared in Dragon Magazine, (laughs) issue 28. Man, uh, so, uh, do you have you um looked into the new Artificer for Fifth Edition as released in the new uh, 
Eberron rising from the last war? No, not yet. Boy, there is an artificer subclass that could just have that crab thing. Basically, so one of the artificer subclasses is called the artillerist. And their thing is basically that they're like the engineer from Team Fortress. And they throw down a turret that they can then like it can grow crab like mechanical legs and and crawl around and as they get higher level they can make it like self-destruct and stuff and it can have flamethrowers or uh like force bolts or like a like it can be a support uh thing man crazy ass thing nice so that's the that's the excerpt that's your magic item of the episode is uh, the apparatus of Qualish, and then the apparatus of Spiky Owns. You think it's a mechanical crab, but it is instead a one-man band. So I'm going to read some entries from the Rifter uh, issue zero. This was, the, I believe, the only issue of Palladium's monthly, or however often it comes out, uh, publication for just like generalized uh, palladium game supplements but this is the only one that came out uh that was like a, an online release like an e-zine you know it was an experiment of trying to do like a pdf based one and i think they only put out the one this is from an entry from ludicrous magic 3 includes new spells for the ludicrous mage and friends <laughs> like to share with you a spell called field of rakes it's a level four spell with a 60 foot radius duration is six melees per level of experience there's no saving throw it costs uh 10 ppe to cast that's your psychic whatever energy this area effect spell sorry this area effect spell turns an average field into a landmine field of tall grass now 1d8 inches tall every yard there is a hidden rake that with the wrong step will hit its victim in the face or back depending on how they are walking or running note for this spell i would recommend that the gm roll on a six-sided die and have them hit by a roll of one two three four or five Six is a miss. <laughs> the rake does minimal damage and is more of a distraction. 1d4, uh, stru- it's the weak type of damage SDC. in Palladium. SDC damage. As Minus four to, to initiative. MDC, which is mega damage. Mega. Yeah. No, and, and really, if you're not doing mega in Palladium, what, what are you doing? But, um, so 1d4 SDC damage. Minus four to initiative and to strike and 25% chance of tripping if running. The caster and those they touched while casting the spell will be able to run through the field without hitting a thing. The spell does not affect those who can fly over the field. It's like uh, a spell that activates that Sideshow Bob sequence from The exactly. Simpsons. <laughs> There's also a whole series of whoopee cushion uh, spells. There's whoopee cushion course. sleep whoopee cushion fart lesser whoopee cushion fart greater (laughs) etc there's a that reminds me as well there's a rake uh in the encyclopedia magica i can't remember the name of it but its power is that it can extend to a seeming seeming infinite length 
So it's very, it's a sort of an anime style weapon where you can like push someone back with it or use it to vault yourself onto high surfaces. Or do that uh, quality bit from the old uh, Roger Corman Avengers movie, like when trip a Mr. Bunch Fantastic. Of yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Heck yeah. I think I meant Fantastic Four, not Avengers, but you get it. The, the unreleased Fantastic Four movie. Um, All you need is that clip, man. I have uh, a recommendation. You know, I, I, I've previously recommended The Gamers, but uh, I know I recommended this to you before. And I was wondering if you had a chance to look at it, uh, a comic series called Die by Kieran Gillen. Die. I, you know, I looked into it the first time you showed me it, but I did not, you know, I haven't uh, gone back and watched it anymore or listen, ugh, read it anymore. The funny thing is that then uh, a podcast I listened to mentioned it. And so... Ah. Now uh, I've got another recommendation on it. I, I bring it up um, because I actually I bought the first trade paperback of it uh, yesterday at BMV Books and reread awesome. the first five issues, and it is still fantastic. I think you're really gonna dig it. It is it it it's like goth heavy metal D and D Narnia. Yeah, this is a good um, minor topic of conversation. Is do you have any uh, like? comic books that you feel are like big inspirations for you as a dm um or even as a player comic books well i i ran a sort of verdant apocalypse campaign that was heavily inspired by the walking dead comics for a while mm. um and like scott the disposable assassin is an inspiration for any kind of like weird cyberpunk surreal stuff i might uh i might delve into but uh no i wouldn't say there are any specific comics that like inspire me in general that i like go back and read but die might well become that you know they've released 10 issues so far and uh, the, the 10 issues sort of wrap up like the season of a tv show where there's a conclusion but obviously the story is going to continue and uh since it deals so directly with just role-playing games but also is a really unique role-playing setting uh i foresee revisiting it a few times to get inspiration for future DD games yeah i definitely want to dig into it at some point um what i uh, have to recommend on this note i don't know if you've read it at all are you familiar with orkstain uh i've heard the name i have never read it orkstain by james stoko is fantastic and is a huge influence on me in terms of like you know just having like a really wild heavy metal setting you know like just um it's just full of huge battle sequences and like really kind of unexplained bizarre fantasy stuff uh there's the whole idea that like the main character's thing is that he can basically he's like a safe cracker but he can find with his like chisel he can find the weak spot of anything and uh you know sometimes that translates to whatever absurd fantasy beast he is fighting in that issue uh but i cannot recommend it enough it is a really good comic cool orc stain i will add it to my yeah. list i'm always looking for new comics to read of, it's full of really interesting like plays on weird fantasy ideas and uh 
really cool characters and whatnot. Uh, you know, uh, there is one other comic series that uh, it hasn't in, it hasn't like directly inspired any campaigns or RPGs that I've done, but it has inspired the tone of the Greyhawk campaign that I'm running, and that's Rat Queens. Have you ever read the comic Rat Queens? Ah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, I know that, that tone one. is exactly what I was going for. That sort of like, you know, there's wry humor where the the setting takes itself fairly seriously. The stakes are real, but it is kind of tongue in cheek as well. Like everybody's sort of having fun with it. So yeah, Rat Queens is definitely one too. This is maybe a, a weird tangent, but um, have you watched The Witcher TV show on Netflix at all? I have seen all of first season of The Witcher. Oh, excellent. What did you think of it? I thought it was pretty good. Um, I watched it at the same time as I was playing The Witcher 3 The Wild Hunt for the first time. Um, mm. So my, I think the biggest praise that I can give to the show is how well it complements just the existing stuff i've I played the witcher 2 and the witcher 3 I never played the first witcher game but i hear it's not very good um and i really dug it's never stopped me i'll go back and play lunar lander man <laughs> uh i really dug how i could watch an episode of the series and then play the game and it just felt completely cohesive like Geralt felt like the same character all the way through um i uh i thought it was I okay just, like I, I give it like a think, like a b plus what i like about the show is i think when it was announced and when the previews were out and stuff i thought that it was going to take like a very dark gritty like game of thrones tone sort of thing like go very ambitious and whatnot on the first and the first I, episode certainly makes it seem that way but what I love is that I think the real um, tonal comparison or, or like the comparison I keep hearing that seems most accurate to me is like back when we had shows like Hercules and Xena, you know, I, I just love how like episodic it is. Yep. And just like I definitely got like a, just, like a Xena for adults vibe. It's off just of got this very wry sense of humor and stuff. And I, I just I dug it. Uh, I I think uh, talking about what you were saying about like the tone of Rat Queens, I was like, yeah, I like that kind of like wry humor. Let's not take it too seriously kind of fantasy. The, yeah, the stakes are real, but the characters recognize that there is humor because that's the thing is like, I don't know, uh, it, it was on Game of Thrones uh, from time to time. But like the characters laughing about stuff and just, you know, joking around and there being funny scenes. You know, life has funny sequences, so I always appreciate it when a fantasy setting doesn't take itself too seriously. And in fact, uh, I should say that uh, I stopped watching HBO's His Dark Materials series because it was just so clinical and self-serious and didn't feel like I could connect to anybody. Yeah, I definitely, even as a player, I think that I sometimes struggle in a game that i feel is being too self-serious mm. um you know there's a certain amount of self-reflexivity you want in your game um but you also want it to be fun i think i th well i think what i'm trying to say is like the worst examples are like when you're playing in a game and you're like oh i get it it's supposed to be america <laughs> 
Oh, can't yeah. stand that stuff like that. Just like well, okay, fair. just very heavy-handed political commentary and whatnot. See, you'll you'll it's never like, have man, that problem with my campaigns. The revelation will be, oh, it's Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in fairness, I I don't mind doing a bit of political commentary and stuff. Like I've I've mentioned things where I compared the Empire to the CIA and things like that, but I. <laughs> Yeah, well, there, you know, there's a threshold for that thing. You know, I will say this. Uh, the Greyhawk campaign that I'm running right now, I did want... It, it's kind of a funny thing. I don't often do this, but, like, the news these days is pretty shitty. You know, like, in reality, the news sucks. Basically, I, I want to s- summarize something. Uh, it's cool if you want to have some political commentary. Just, like... Don't make it like orc refugees or something. Like, just don't, don't go for the like the most cliche. Make it a metaphor, thing. not not obvious. Mm. Um. Anyway, the news is really shitty these days. You know, take your pick: climate change, Trump, Australia's on fire. Like, shit's not very happy. And I was finding that I and many people kind of feel like a bit powerless in the face of it all like there's only so much that you can actually do to help the situation Uh, most of the time though you just have to sort of press on with your life and try not to get too depressed when you you know open the cnn's website and find the latest insanity there so what i wanted to do with my greyhawk campaign is i wanted to give my players the opportunity to overcome that to actually gain control over the situation where it feels like they're powerless and that's why one of the main arcs of the greyhawk campaign is the player there's like a an evil demigod that's about to break through uh through the planes and into their reality and just like start wreaking havoc upon the land uh and you know, the players are like, what can we do in the face of a demigod? We're just, you know, a half-elf, and, you know, we're just a rogue and a barbarian, just these low-level heroes. What can we actually do in the face of such huge power? And part of, uh, I won't say it here, because I don't want to spoil the ending, but part of my, my goal with the ending is to make them feel like they can actually undo that stuff. We may not be able to do it in the real world, but damn well... We can do it in D&D. We've already touched on the philosophical backbone of my game, but with the NPOC and the Nightside Eclipse, basically, agents of the NPOC every session are posed a question by me in the form of the Nightside Eclipse, which is, wouldn't you rather be dead? And uh, <laughs> the NPOC's just got to keep proving me wrong. <laughs> and that is the philosophical arc of tom's campaign wouldn't you rather be dead i mean prove me wrong (laughs) prove me wrong you wouldn't be better off dead we got cool magic and and robots and stuff man we haven't even gotten into all that the the depths of the nightside eclipse the interdimensional necro supremacist terror spreading to other dimensions yeah well my players are stuck on the moon yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to boast or anything. I'm just saying. Flex your your DM chops at me. What? What is I doing? 
<laughs> my players are stuck on the moon. Oh yeah, weird flex, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's I it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. There's uh, man, that's definitely another topic. Is like, in lieu of death, weird punishments that you bestow on characters. Like, basically, you know, they didn't die, but something had to happen to them. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I got a prime example of that, but we could talk about that. Uh, as next do time. I. All right, thank you for tuning in. Uh, as always, this is Comparing Campaign, and I'm Tom Lando. You can reach me at uh, at Narnog on Twitter. That's N A R underscore N O G. Uh, we're gonna have a Facebook page. Well, we do and have a, a Facebook WordPress. page. Oh, yeah, we have a Facebook page. That's right. Yeah, people can like but, our Facebook page now. There isn't a lot of content, but there will be by the time you listen to this. Yeah. It's comparing campaign. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, our Facebook page Once is up, up, and uh, the best way to reach me is just through that Facebook page. That's right. Yeah, we've got it now. And uh, once we've got it all filled up, We'll start linking to that WordPress, and you can see fun things like a map of Drail and illustrations uh, pictures of the of... lantern, mood boards from yeah. the steampunk campaign, and more. Yeah. Yeah. What's your catchphrase? Um, uh, not me. That's it. I'll find one yet.